to episode 14 of Texing, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. Hey, guys. Today, we have two guests on the show, uh, Peldy from Balsamic Studios and Jason Cohen from Smart Bear Software. Hi, guys. Hey. We decided that it may be a good idea to have to try a panel show. We have, you know, a couple guests on who we've had on the past. And, uh, you know, you guys seem like it'd be a really good um, uh, match to have on because I think... Uh, Jason, you actually wrote a, uh, at least one, if not more, two or three blog posts that covered Balsamic, or at least Balsamic, uh, in in regards to small micro companies and stuff, didn't you? Like it was like a month or two ago. Yeah, I did. I mean, I think Balsamic is the model that um, almost anybody who's a you know one to two to maybe three founder shop wants to emulate. You know, someone with. The, everyone respects them. They get a lot of reviews. Their blog is well traveled. The product works. Um, and of course, the biggest thing is they've been growing like mad, and so, you know, it's a it's a good model for anyone, I think. Yeah, you can't argue with success, I guess. I actually had a question, which is um, just just talking about that success. Um, I'm just currently making attempting to make a a piece of desktop software using PHP and uh, JavaScript, and I'm hoping to you know once again to be one of those guys who emulates uh, what's going on with Balsamic and Peldy. Um, but one of the things I was wondering is. Peldy and Jason, when you sell your software, do you use affiliates? Uh, and you know, if if you do, what's good about it? And if if not, why not? I think uh, I think affiliates are good depending on the market that you're in. So, for example, um, well, I'll let Peldy talk about his own stuff, but uh, I would I would guess that it works that that it might work for him. But you know, Thirty Seven Signals has done really well with it. Um, anything in the sort of social media sphere. Like any, anything in that area, it's probably going to work well because you're dealing with people who like to blog and have books and other stuff that sort of can promote this stuff already. People who are trying to make a living off their blog or at least make a little money off their blog and you're providing them a way to do it. So it's a, it's, it's a pretty simple way to get at least some publicity, um, if not some sales. On the other hand, at SmartBear, for example... Um, we're selling stuff in the thousands of dollars range at the lowest end and, and hundreds of thousands at the highest end. And obviously for a $100,000 sale to a big company, affiliate, affiliates are um, you know, irrelevant. I would also say that it might be difficult at the low end, like if I'm selling an iPhone app for $0.99, cents, um, I wouldn't say that affiliates are impossible, but it's hard to give them much of a slice, such a small amount of money to begin with. Um, but there's probably this sweet spot, you know, around dollars and in the right market where people like to talk about it, where it, why not try affiliates? You just missed that, that price there. You cut out there. Oh, uh, maybe between $10, $20 and $200, maybe, maybe more where it makes sense. And Pel Peldy, does Balsamic use affiliates? Uh, not at the moment, no. Um, I have a Gmail folder uh, full of emails of uh, people that uh, have offered to become affiliates. Um, the reason I haven't done affiliates so far is because um, I haven't gotten around to it. Um, my fear is that it will be um, a lot of um, managing. Uh, you know, it, it might suck up uh, some time on my end to make sure that people are getting paid properly. I'm sure there's some web app out there that makes it all painless, but uh, I just haven't had time to look into it uh, so far. Um, I plan on doing it as soon as, you know, things slow down enough for me to start thinking about that. But um, 
again, you know, $79 for the desktop version, it's pretty cheap already. Yeah. I, I don't know, you know, I'd be fine with offering people a 10, 15% off of that, but um, I'm not sure that's worth their time either. Uh, basically, I don't know enough at the moment um, to think about it. It's interesting because I, what, I, what I was expecting you guys to say um, was that you you didn't want to get involved with affiliates because it's just a bit of a you know has a sort of seedy reputation, but but neither of you felt that way, which is sort of interesting to me. I don't I don't think it's seedy. Um, I'll give you an example. I know a guy, and I, I won't say who it is just in case because I'm not sure if this is supposed to be public information or not. But um, he has a blog, and he tried monetizing it with Google Ads, and and as you might expect, that generates almost no revenue. So he turned to an affiliate program and sold some various things uh, through that and he's making maybe forty fifty dollars a day which doesn't sound like a lot but consider that he has about um, uh, uh, six seven hundred uniques a day that's it and so with with a traffic that size um, that's actually not so bad and his point of view was <clears throat> he wants to take advertising of some kind and if you think that taking advertising of some kind on a blog is sort of you know inappropriate, then then that is a perfectly fine position to be in. But assuming that you like advertising, um, an affiliate program it really isn't that different than an ad. It's just uh, the only thing really that's different is how you get paid. So normal advertising you might get paid whatever a dollar per a thousand views or something. And this way you only get paid if a sale happens, but you get paid a lot more, like maybe twenty dollars. So in his experience, look, an ad is an ad, and you know, um, it's easier for for the software sellers to use affiliates because they only have to pay when they make a sale. So that's of course a, a much easier proposition for them, and uh, apparently um, it beats out at least Google ad type style advertisement anyway. So it, there doesn't seem to be anything shady or weird about it. Um, okay, cool. Thank you so very we'll, much. Guys. Well, Justin, why don't you why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about what you're working on? Well, it's a couple of things. First of all, I found this this tool that lets you create desktop applications for the PC using PHP. It's it's great. What it does is, in a single exe, it sort of bundles up PHP and it bundles up your PHP code. And um, then when they when they click on the exe, it unpacks a web server, or it un unpacks a browser, like a version of of Internet Explorer. So you can be sure that it's going to display the same on whatever computer it's on. And then just sort of lets them use that internal desktop app. And you know everyone's going crazy about Twitter, so I'm writing a Twitter client, um, and that's pretty much it. Now, what do you think the business model is for the whole the, the sort of Twitter ecosphere, whatever? I mean, an ecosystem. I mean, do is there seem to be real money in building that stuff? Because everybody's in it, and it's just like the whole thing with like iPhone apps and then Facebook apps. It's like everybody goes and starts building on something, and I'm wondering is that suddenly when everybody's doing something, is it too late? You know, it comes too proud to do much of anything. Well, I do have a new twist on it, but uh, I'm not going to say it until I've got it ready. <laughs> well, that's cool. When are you going to do? Um, are you going to be really sort of transparent about everything, like uh, Balsamic? Is that what you're saying when you have to blog about sales and building the product, everything like that? Well, that's that's the theory. <laughs> it's right. working for Peldy, but I don't want to make Peldy feel uncomfortable. You still? What there? do you think? Is he still there? I'm here. I'm here. Why should I feel uncomfortable? All the hero worship. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I, I was actually uh, thinking about wondering if this new mic I'm using uh, lets you uh, hear my blushing. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, 
Peldy, how have things let we know we first spoke to you, I guess it was about how six weeks ago or something or a couple months ago. How how have things been going? I mean you were you had just hired, I think, your second employee because you your wife works with you part time and then you hired brought an uh, a guy on, is that right? Yeah, uh I hired Marco back in February and then uh Valerie um I think it was May or June, yeah. And uh <clears throat> it's still just the three of you though, you haven't expanded beyond that yet? Uh, that's it. Um, we're in talks with uh, another uh, developer that we've using, uh, we've been uh, working with um, on a contract basis for a while. Um, we're talking about whether it makes sense for everybody to uh, switch that to become a sort of a maybe part-time employer, employee um, uh, contract. But uh, that's, uh, that's, that's the status, yes, for sure. Right, so things not- are going great. That's awesome because you're, you know, because you're really on a, on a on a pretty steep trajectory. It seems like you released and was it June or in the summer, and then you're just, you know, really hitting out of the park. And I think Jason, you said it took you about two and a half years before you could really afford to bring on a second person. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, the first the first project we made was okay, but really it, you know, it didn't generate enough money to to see real growth or to have a lot uh, in the bank. And also I'm oddly enough, very conservative. So, you know, for me, I like to have six months of, of run rate in the bank before I do something um, expensive, like a big media blitz or hiring somebody. And that way <clears throat> I know I have a whole lot of buffer. So even if it's a big mistake, it it's not going to impact the business. And so, um, yeah, for me, it was, uh, I, I got this order for 50 grand and I thought, Great. I'm going to use this to hire somebody, and even if I blow through all 50 grand before I figure out it didn't work, uh, it was worth it. It was worth the chance, you know, worth right. the uh, worth the attempt. And it turned out to be great, but uh, that was the mindset. And how long have you how long have you been in business now? Smartpeer is seven years old. Seven years. So you went. You're so about two and a half years in. You hired your first employee, and now you have. I think you said 16 employees now. Yeah, I mean, obviously it snowballed after a certain time, and we're also still conservative, not necessarily money-wise, because that's just not a, not really an issue anymore. But um, it, it, you know, you can't hire really fast and still keep the culture, keep and maintain really strict hiring practices. Um, you know, you only want to hire the, you know, the 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 best and so on. And if you're Dell, you can't, you know, you have to hire a lot of people all the time. You can't afford to to be like that, but we still can. And, you know, they say you get to be a certain size and you, and you have to give up on that. I'm not sure about that, but uh, that day has not come yet. So we want to be careful. And yeah, so they, I think one of the rules, uh, you know, rules of thumb is that it's been a small company is that you don't want any false positives. You know, it's like if you hire someone that turns out to, to not work out, it's a, it does much more damage than hiring somebody good because it takes a long to get rid of them and because you, you spend so much time trying to figure out wow this is this not working out or how do we fix it and it creates a lot of stress and a lot of distraction so as a small company you just got to be really careful because you know especially you know when you're just like three or four or five people one person i mean that can just be a major problem if, if uh, yeah i absolutely agree and i agree on being conservative i like to have the first year salary in the bank of anybody that i hire uh before i do um, the question, I had a question actually about something you said, Jason, um, you said, you know, obviously it snowballs. Um, I hope it doesn't for me, my, my, uh, long-term vision is to have a company of maybe five, maybe six people at the most. Um, 
Do you think that's unrealistic? Do you think uh, I'm going to, now that I'm, you know, three employees or two or three employees, I'm going to have to go to 16? No, 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 no. There's nothing inevitable about it. Um, maybe I, I didn't express it right. Uh, I guess as it snowballed, it was easy to, the, the financial uh, question went away because it was it, not a matter of finance, but instead all the rest of the stuff, which is, you know, obviously just as important. But at least that one component was not an issue, which was nice, right? It's just nice to have, not right. have that constraint and be able to make the, the good choices for the business without that constraint. But no, I don't think it's inevitable. Um, I think what what you what is true is that there's a, there's a saying: if you're not growing, you're dying. I'm not sure about having to grow in the sense of adding people and adding revenue. In that sense. No, I don't think you have to do that forever. And in fact, I would agree with you that especially as a, as a lifestyle choice and even uh, just the expected value of how much money you can get out of the company in, let's say, five years, um, I would agree that staying small and tight and loving to come to work and loving everyone you work with is, is, is better for a lot of people than trying to shoot the moon or, or grow as much as you can or something. I, I agree with that completely. But at the same time, being complacent and saying, well... We have a product people like. I guess we don't have to add f features. Well, that may be true, but maybe you need a new product, or maybe you do need features, or maybe there's something else. But it, it, as soon as you stop changing in some way, or stop growing, stop learning, stop doing new stuff, then you're on the road to obsolescence. Then you're just milking whatever you've got. Um, at, in in kind of big business stuff, it's called harvesting. When you take a company that's not going anywhere and you just strip it down to its skeleton crew and just let the revenues come in and it'll die and so what you just harvest that now i mean nobody on this call has that attitude but but if you you know sort of decide well we're done um then e even though it's not a, in, a, in an evil way you know th that's the beginning of the end when you decide that yeah, right, you know, right. one, of the, one of the reasons that I, I, I want to go down this line of, of conversation is I read an article last night about John Carmack. You know, he's the one who wrote the the uh, the engine for uh, Doom and Quake and all that. He's this, and uh, he he said that essentially they backed off from growing it into like a big bigger company like Epic or Valve because the engine that they wrote their their three D gaming engine. I think it was the one that they used for Quake Arena or something was licensed out to I think it was like 50 different companies or something like that that were dependent on their technology. And what happened was he said that you, ha you have a hard time moving forward because you have to support all these developers and stuff. And he's like, you know what? Yeah, we could have grown and, and all that, but I just want to keep it small because I want to do cool stuff. I want to be able to change stuff. And partially it was because he wanted the flexibility to innovate faster. But I think it seemed like it came across also that he didn't really care to become a really big company. He just wanted to do fun stuff. And th that was kind of interesting. I mean, that's why was, that's kind of what I want to pose the question I want to pose to you guys. It's like, you know, at what point does this desire to build something and you want to make it big enough and cool enough that it grows? But at what point does the growth in itself start to become um, a problem? Like it gets so big that you're no longer being able to do the cool stuff because you're managing all these people. Well, it definitely well, I, happens. Go ahead. Sorry. Um, I guess uh, maybe I came across wrong. I think that um, I'm not talking about slowing down anytime soon. Uh, I'm talking about slowing down in, in the headcount because I think that, um, you know, four or five really good and highly motivated people can really build 
amazing products. Um, the the right team can achieve uh, as much, if not more, as uh, as uh, much bigger teams. And um, so, you know, when mockups is mature enough that doesn't need uh, as many changes as it as it does right now, you know, we'll work on a, on the next project. Uh, I guess if you uh, if you're willing to uh, take your time and work on one thing at a time and do that really well, I think that you don't need to grow your team past a certain size. What do you think? Um, I, well, <clears throat> I, I agree in general. So, for example, we haven't had to add new developers at SmartBear in, in a few years. Those new hires weren't in development. So from the point of view of writing code, um, I think that's approximately true. Um, you know, products though, they, you know, there's, there's new bugs, there's new things to do. So you always need someone on it. So if you, if you think about it, let's say in the next five years, you end up making one new product a year and doing it really well. Um, I, I would budget at least one person to, to maintain the older right. products, right? And even though, even though you don't need a big team to make the, the next product, which I completely agree with, um, you need at least one person to babysit a project um, just to handle the bugs, the tech support, the little things that change. There's a new version of Windows, and you have to support whatever. And you know, there's always there's always some stuff. And uh, I don't think you can get away with less than one person and still be doing a good job supporting a product. And things like tech support and other customer relation stuff. That's also where more headcount appears. So, you know, um, as you get more people, you may not need new development resources uh, and by resources it may be contractors or employees or whatever but the more chatter there is the more questions there are you just need more people to to, to continue doing a really good job communicating with them right i can see that happening and then then see the problem is and this is this is the crappy part about getting a lot of people and why i think it's actually not a bad idea to to, to seek smallness but then you have stuff like, well, okay, if we have seven people in the office, then what do we do about lunch? Because we realize that, well, when we go out to lunch, it takes an hour and a half or two hours. Maybe we should bring lunch in. Well, that's a good idea. Who's going to do that? Well, maybe we should hire a part-time person to do that, which we did do at SmartBear, by the way. We bring lunch still every single day for free for everybody, and it's a nice perk, and people spend less time at lunch, and they enjoy it. Um, but someone's got to do that. Or then, like us, for example, or 37 Signals for that matter, you decide, you know what, uh, let's write a book or let's have an e-book or let's, um, I don't know, you're going to do something, right? And then, well, who's going who's gonna to send the books out and manage that? And In other words, every time you do something or just by having more people, just if stuff appears and it doesn't seem like it should have to appear, but it does and then you need a person. And, <laughs> um yeah, it's just yeah, it's just it naturally has overhead to it, just to managing all that stuff and dealing with it. Can um, you could you sorry, Jason? Could you uh, tell us uh, the breakdown of uh, your company at the moment? How many developers? Are, you know, what are the jobs people do in a company of sixteen? Sure. So we have well, we have seven developers, but we don't have tech support. The developers do the tech support. And we rotate out of, in and out of tech support um, so that no one person has to do it all the time. Um, and that's a whole conversation on its own on, on why I think that's a really good idea. But it also means that's the, the sort of totality of the engineering stuff. But uh, nowadays, for example, um, we, 
we do so many demos, you know, like webinar type demos and individual company demos and answering questions. And this customer wants an hour to talk about features and benefits and stuff. So, for example, we have a whole person, Greg Sporar, and that's his entire job to do that kind of customer-facing uh, demos and discussions and whatnot. Um, uh, we have four salespeople, which was new in the last couple of years because before that we didn't have any sales at all. Um, let's see. Have I? Let me see how, how I've added that up. Um, we have um, we have someone who helps with things like newsletters and writing releases and um, and also helps out on tech support. Um, we have another woman who help, who does a lot of the marketing stuff, so helps write white papers and blog posts and gets attention to the editors. A lot of the stuff that a PR person would do, which by the way, I don't think you need a PR firm to do. You can do it yourself, but it takes you know half a person to do that. So there it is. Um, we used to do a lot of more trade shows, things like that. That obviously takes a ton of time. Someone's got to manage that. But you know, <clears throat> you know, th there's another good example actually, Greg. So, you know, you you do enough demos and webinars and stuff like that, and it it ends up eating a whole person because the stuff is peppered all around the schedule of the customer. Or you get larger customers, and then they you know have needs and they want to have their own meetings and all this. Um, so some of that depends on the company, but you know, even if you look at a company like 37 Signals, which you might argue is closer to the balsamic model in terms of like, you know, let's just do you know a few projects, let's do them really well, let's you know be transparent and open, and that means people will accept things like forums um, for tech support, and we won't have to answer the phone so much, and let's keep it simple so we don't have to you know have webinars and let's not care about what each individual person wants. You can do all that, right? And, and that's good. But if you look at them, they haven't stopped hiring. Like every time you turn around their blog, they just hired a new designer. They just hired, uh, for example, just now, I think in the last week, they just hired a full-time tech support person. So, you know, even, even 37 Signals, who I think you can hold up as a model of simplicity and don't hire too many people and you know, don't make products that are complicated, that require a lot of support. I mean, they're like the model of all of that, and yet they're hiring people left and right. It's just Yeah, it's just, but, you know, they've been you know, around 10 years, and I think they have, what, a dozen people, right? Uh, well, well but, but a couple of years ago, how many people did they have? I right. think like well, four. So my last point is... Years they took off, they have five products, there are, you know... So the point there I, is, the point there is that it... it it's snowballed. <laughs> right. That exactly right. The success, exactly. the success that they've had mean, you know, but, but beforehand it wasn't snowballing. Then it got to the point where it was snowballing. And then obviously it's like, you know, when you have so much snow on a roof, you've got to get more people to hold the roof up. Exactly. And, and they hire a full-time design person. We don't have that. Maybe we should, uh, you know, that's not a, a I'm not saying that's good or bad, but it's just a, an observation that they feel that that's something that will have that big of an impact. And, and, it may or may not for any other given business at any given time. But look, they could have decided, you know what, let's just stick with Basecamp and not do anything else. They could have chosen that and they could have said, let's just write Getting Real and we'll, we'll do a, a new book like they are working on and we'll just do Basecamp. And then if they just did Basecamp, they probably wouldn't need a dozen people, right? But, but they, had, they right. do have five products or four or whatever and, and, and so on. Is this story depressing to hear, Peldy? No, not at all. In fact, uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's refreshing, and uh, it's it's just what I needed to hear. Um, you know, I'm not against becoming a big company uh, on principle. I just um, never thought that I would have a big company, and uh, you know, I don't know if we're ever going to be a big company. But um, I can I can definitely see now how 
you know, you just if you want to do more stuff, uh, you're going to need people uh, for legacy and for just the fact that there's you know, more stuff to do. Um, and, w- and when you're like a one person or, or a three person company, I guess 16 just seems ginormous, right? You're just like, absolutely. Three. Yeah, what it seems insane. <laughs> I can tell you they would not fit in my room or in my house. <laughs> The office. Oh, <laughs> another Jason, problem. Yeah. Jason, you're probably thinking, you know what? We're micro. We're like nothing, right? I mean, it depends. Well, no, you no get actually, so impressive. It no, no actually, no. It does. It seems massive to me because I, I because the the feelings that Pedaly just said, I still have them. You don't get over this, guys. Like I still remember straightening the paper clips to save money, right? Like, <laughs> you know. It, the struggle there, you don't forget that. Uh, every day I wonder, who the hell are all these people? What do they do? <laughs> like, I'm not kidding. It's, it's uh, the, the, the kind of the fear of what are we doing? Is this the right choice? Should we grow? Do we really need all these people? Um, but are you in danger you know, of the hiring spiral? I mean, is it possible that people you hire sometimes to justify their own jobs sort of promote the idea that they should hire someone? No, we we don't have that problem at all. Um, you know, I think as long as you, the, there's some kind of like pithy way of saying this, but there's some rule about like you don't hire someone until it's just over. You're it's you're crushed. It's overwhelming being crushed by the lack of having someone doing something. Right? Like, oh my God, we're you know we're adding three bucks to the list for every one that we fix. We have to get on top of this. It's just ridiculous. You know, something like that. Um, or in the case of the demos, I was doing all the demos um, and all that sort of stuff. And and you could look at my schedule and literally it would be – I would have like two to three hours a day that weren't scheduled with something like that. Um, and, you know, just – it was insane. Like I literally couldn't do anything. I was blanketed in it. I mean so as long as you're always hiring because of something completely ridiculously obvious like that, then you know, you're not creating – you're not creating uh, jobs that are unnecessary as long as that's the case. But, okay. you know, we could have made a different choice. Like, you know what? Screw it. Let's not do demos. Now, in my opinion, in, and, and again, that's in our product and our market, um, I think that would have hurt sales, and so this was the right choice. But, you know, <clears throat> things like that are always possible. I mean, there's a lot of people that say things like, well, look, if a customer wants to talk your ear off all the time, maybe you shouldn't have that customer. Maybe you should refund their money and say, you know what? This isn't for you. Um, you know, I don't think we're we're able to really, you know, give you everything that you need. So thanks for playing, but no thanks. And you know what? That's a great. That also is a is a great attitude to just say, you know what? Let's just stay four people, five people. Let's be profitable. Let's have customers who are profitable for us, very profitable, and that's cool. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, this this isn't right and wrong. This is just stuff that that uh that you could choose. Right now, how much of your time do you, is spent doing things like managing at the very top level versus stuff like actually doing, you know, product development? I mean, I, I would just be curious that if, if let's say that you, that's one of the things that you get enjoyment out of, is, which is writing code and building stuff, and then you get you, you start to have to transitioning to spending most of your time speaking to customers or speaking to accountants or talking to HR, doing those really higher level things. I mean, then it could become kind of frustrating because you're like, God, I, you know, you know, we're more successful. I make, you know, we make more money. That's cool and all, but I don't get to really do, I don't get the excitement of creation anymore. I mean, are you, how do you feel about that? And what's your, what's your sort of stance on, on that? Yeah, it sucks. Uh, I like to write code and I don't do that anymore. 
that's, really that's, anymore. It's so so. It's like if you do it, is it just like on a weekend because you have an idea and you want to play with it and like that's yeah. It? I, I shoehorn it in when I can. I mean, it's it's bad. Uh, that and that's the case. And every time I hired someone, every time I thought, okay, this person is going to take some of this crap off my desk, so that I'll be able to get back to doing something that I like. Every time I thought that, and guess what? <laughs> now let's yeah. ask Pelty the same question. Yeah. Well, actually, that um, so. The, the what Jason has been saying uh, rings very true to me. Uh, um, for instance, I uh, I started not having time to code anymore uh, completely. I mean, I, I just had to do uh, customer management um, all week, and then I would code during the weekend because I wouldn't get as much email during the weekend. And so I did that for a couple of months. And then I woke up one day and I was like, "What am I doing? Uh, I need to hire somebody to help me code." And so then. Uh, um, Marco started doing all the coding and then uh, I, I, you know, I did a little bit in my spare time and then I realized um, that I really didn't like my job all of a sudden um, because uh, I missed, uh, I missed the coding part. And so um, one of my advisors, Sarah Allen said, uh, put it in a way that really uh, uh, sunk it in, uh, which she said, you're harming the company. You are a great coder. You know, you got this far because of your coding skills and you're not doing that anymore. So the company is now not as good as it was when you were doing the coding. So please hire somebody right now so that you can get back to coding. And so, you know, that's when I decided to hire Valerie. And um, I have to say that's, uh, that's working out really well. Um, I haven't been uh, really, I've been on vacation uh, the last three weeks, even though Hopefully you didn't notice. Um, I uh, I've been working maybe less than two hours a day, and Valerie's basically running the company. We haven't done um, any development in the last three weeks because Mark is on vacation as well. We're a very European company in this uh, respect. Uh, we, uh, we you know we shut off for August. Oh great. Um, so but anyways, so basically I've been working two hours a day, and we've had our best week ever last week. So, you know, maybe I should not be involved in the business as much. I think maybe you should take uh, September off then. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's the lesson. But I guess I'm looking forward to coming back, going back to work and doing what I've been doing two hours a day, which is keeping up with customers' requests and stuff. Um, And then hopefully I'll have. I'll be able to, you know, dedicate six hours to coding. Of course, there's always the Tim Ferriss four hour work week approach, which is just to basically outsource your whole life. Oh, I hate that. I hate that so much. What's the point? I mean, it is, what we do is so much fun. This is our passion. Why would you have somebody else do it? I agree with Peldy. I mean, you know, you, you, you oftentimes in, in the sort of the business world, it's like technical people or people who write code are sort of looked down on like they're not management, like they're just code monkeys. They're just nerds sitting in corners or the people in other countries writing the code. But that's missing the point because the, pro- the process of creation, the, the, of coming up with an idea and actually trying to solve problems, I mean, it's it's incredible. I mean, there's very few things in life that are like the process of creation. I don't care whether you're writing a book or making music or painting a picture or writing code. I mean, He's talking about in- outsourcing everything, like including yeah, well, your I'm, email I'm, I'm, inbox, reading your email. Well, that's fine. I mean, yeah, but I'm, yeah, <laughs> but I'm just talking about just purely, you know, specifically the idea of like – and what Peldy's concerned with is like – Outsourcing uh, the coding itself, or getting to the point where you're not able to participate in what you love to do, and and that's one thing that always concerns me because I, you know, I don't ever want to, even if I'm successful in in in, in some startup or something, I don't want to get to the point where I don't have to, I don't get to write code anymore. I just have to stand around and watch other people write and talk about things at a high level because it's just not as fun. Will you write code when you're seventy? Hell yeah! 
Yeah. I mean, it's like this. It's like, would you ask a, would you ask a mathematician if he wants to do mathematics when he's 70 or an author if they write when they're 70? You no, know, they're going to quit and just sit on a, and, and just sit around and, and, and tell other people what to do. I mean, that's not, that's not fun. I mean, not well, nearly what's, what's, what Tim says is you, you do all that in order to do what you actually want to do. And I think the the point he, uh, that all of us are saying is, but this is what we actually want to do. Which, exactly. So, and the other thing is about outsourcing. I mean, you have to assume that anything that's outsourced will be done sort of mediocre at best, probably subpar. So the question is, <clears throat> what things is that okay? Because there is stuff like that. Like in other words, uh, entering in your receipts and, and doing kind of bookkeeping part of accounting. Is it okay if that's sort of done subpar? You know what? It is okay. It doesn't really matter that much, and your time is better is better spent elsewhere. But like, you look at Balsamic and you say, "Well, what about writing the code or thrilling customers? Are those things that are okay to do mediocre?" And obviously, the answer is no way. And so, of course, you don't outsource that. It's it's it is why people will give you money, so you can't outsource it. Yep. Yeah. I just think, uh, yeah, it's it's important to 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 stay focused on on doing what you love to do and not getting lost in the process because that happens. I think a lot of people is they get so focused on success or making money or doing other things that they get away from what it is that makes them happy. And then all of a sudden, Hey, I made a lot of money or I'm, I'm a big success, but you know what? I don't do what I love to do anymore. So I think Peldy is, is right to keep, keep his eye on that. And, and but it, I mean, it's really hard. It's, it's easy. It's not just that you focus on the wrong things is that there's a lot of things to do. I, I, I started saying, you know, this is garbage work. I will do it. I don't want anybody, any of my employees, you know, do this stuff because it's just tedious and it takes a lot of time. And so I started taking that on and taking it on. And then all of a sudden, that's all I was doing. Uh, so, you know, there is work that uh, needs to be done, um, even even if you're focused on, on, on the right thing. Well, that's definitely you harming your company. I mean, if you're if you're taking on, you know, stuff that isn't building value, then you are hurting the company. Right. If the problem is that there's a, as as Peldy just said, there is a lot of stuff where you ju- it just has to be done. And is it adding value to the company? Well, <clears throat> you know, not like writing code or a great new blog post, uh, not like that. No, it's not. But it still has to be done anyway. Like someone has to mess around with the accountants, and someone has to mess around with the office stuff, and. Um, you know, right now you don't, you're not leasing space, which is fantastic. And maybe you can stay that way forever and do remote stuff like 37 signals does, but let's pretend like you have an office space, right? Then there's that. I mean, <clears throat> there's just a million little things come up and Operations. No, they don't, yeah, they just don't add value, but they're there. It's sort of like, I mean, to me, if you pardon the programming metaphor, it's like a memory fragmentation. Um, you know, there is no memory allocator except, in, I guess, in extreme cases. But in a general case, memory allocation will always have fragmentation, and it can be external and internal, and you can, you can do better and you can optimize. But like the bottom line is, you're going to have memory fragmentation, and there's going to be penalties you have to pay, and it can be like GC style, or it could be just internal fragmentation, like whatever. But w- when you do stuff, there's waste, and it doesn't add value, but you still have to mess with it. And to me, that's what all this business ops is. It, it sucks, and it's not adding value, but look, there it is. Someone's got to do it. It surprised me. I mean, I've you know, in, in the startups that I've been in, it's, it's always surprised me just how much of that stuff there is. And you end up going on a complete tangent and spending you know, a whole day looking for the cheapest whiteboard because you just don't want to waste money. So you go onto eBay and then you try and buy it, but there's a problem with the payment processing. <laughs> and it's just like all that little stuff adds up. It's incredible. Yeah. And I love how uh, nobody ever teaches you any of this stuff. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I uh, remember when I started 
saying, um, telling a customer, listen, I don't accept uh, purchase orders because I'm a small company. I have um, little resources. Uh, the real reason was that I never heard the term. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what to do with that. I was like, uh, what do you mean a purchase order? Is this some sort of like a Nigerian scam? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so, you know, we do take POs now. That's great. Yeah, well, Nobody I remember ever the, when, you that. When, when I when, when I first start up, it was just a um, uh, a buddy of mine. We wrote wrote this code, and it was we were selling it to uh, a bunch of banks and trading firms in uh, Chicago, New York, San Francisco, London, places like that. And uh, our very first sale, uh, oh, when we were going to make our very first sale, it was a big demo. We went to this you know big uh, company, and they you know a bunch of their execs are sitting around, and we demo it, and they're like. You know, they wanted to buy it, but then we're kind of like, okay, so now what happens? <laughs> okay, give us the money. <laughs> like, exactly. So uh, do you just write us a check now or? <laughs> so, you, so you said that to them, did you? Well, I don't remember what we, we just kind of were like, um, it was kind of like a cub, like a, that didn't know how to kill its prey. You're just sitting there like, I don't know <laughs> what, what we're supposed to do now. They like our product. We want to sell it to them. Um, does anyone have a uh, check they want to write? You know, so, what, so what was the outcome? Well, I I can't remember. I, I'm trying to remember what happened, but essentially we we under we figured out real quick. Like, oh, so what you do is you send them an invoice with like you know terms. Like you give them the product and you unlock it, and then they got terms to pay it, and they get an invoice, and then it just gets sent back. And you know, obviously it's very simple. But if you've never done it, I mean, we're a couple of years out of college, and you know, um, we had never even worked really much at a real company. We just started our company, so we didn't know how business was transacted. So it was hilarious. Like, we just didn't even know. Like, it was like the time um, in uh, Visionet, the the very first uh, internet consultancy that I, I uh, co-founded in Ireland. And this was before the internet was anything. It was just after Gopher. <laughs> and we, we went into the, somehow we managed to get into the Bank of Ireland and pitch to them um, to, you know, to sell, to sell them. And, and when they asked us how much you're going to charge, we said, well, we'll, you know, we'll put you on the internet for 25 pounds. <laughs> 25 pounds yeah so what did they have we, they were, we were like you know 19 at the time i mean we just totally didn't <laughs> have a dollars like we, no we were nine we were 19 years old and we were right, just right. like you know but i mean you're gonna charge them like 20 bucks yeah 20 bucks basically <laughs> just <laughs> to put a bank okay. online what are these kids talking about yeah i think i probably don't even know how to pay for something with 20 bucks <laughs> like how do we even pay for that it's so low. I mean, you, you purchase order for twenty dollars. I mean, they just looked at us like we were crazy and sent us on our way. Yeah, that's funny. Well, you know, one thing I would say, my my, my first company we did was it was uh, like so with a friend of mine, and we um we ended up hiring my wife, who was just my girlfriend at the time, which of course is a questionable thing to do. But we had gone through and had our first person we hired turned out to be an absolute disaster. He was this guy an MBA from a top school and he was going to take us public and do all this stuff and he was negotiating hard for equity and he turned out to be a total lemon. I mean, just a disaster. He, all he wanted to do was sit around and, JG, do you think, do you think this is going to work? Do you think we're going to make money? Do you think like, no, dude, I don't know. I mean, I think so, but we're already in. It's like we're in a rowboat. We're out to sea, so you better just start paddling, you know? <laughs> I could tell you one way we're not going to succeed is if we stand around here, you know, just you know, asking ourselves is going to succeed. Gazing. Yeah, it's like it's too late. You know, we're out the sea. You better just start paddling. You know, yeah. and so we ended up having to axe that guy, and uh, and I hired my uh, my girlfriend at the time, and uh, and what was interesting is so we, we sort of had her do all the stuff other than coding and sales demos. 
So in an early company, it's like she would do the accounting, she would do the PR, she would do the customer support, she would she had up all the stuff for the, uh, you know, got us in the trade shows. You know, it was nice in a in a small company. I think you can sometimes if you find people that can do do the things that you don't want to do, so you can just focus on the core things. So we were able to do that, which was just focus on writing the code and focus on uh, on sales and everything else. Uh, my girlfriend now my wife was able to do for us i think there's something to be said for getting your wife uh, partner involved in in what you're doing as a startup because it gives them some kind of emotional investment because there's always a risk you know and well, if they if they're emotionally invested it makes it a lot easier well there's a couple problems i mean you know obviously it depends on the relationship i mean some couples can work together great and some just it's a disaster i mean i think it's all over the map in terms of whether you can even work with your uh your spouse. Another thing, of course, is that it, it, if you're not diversifying your risk, so if like if we went down in flames, you know, is a problem. And in fact, that's what ended up what happening. I mean, you know, we got to the point we kind of saturated the market that we were selling to. I mean, really, it was it turned out not to be nearly as big of a market as we thought, and we were kind of running out of customers. And we got to a point where my, you know, Sandy would turn to us to my buddy Phil and I, and she'd be like, "Okay, so this month it's uh, everybody gets half a salary." We're like, "Oh man," you know, and it was like. <laughs> Everybody gets half a salary, and then everybody gets a third of a salary, and it was brutal. But what made it worse is that you know, Sandy and I, you know, we're each getting hit, right? It's not like she had a stable job. Yeah, that's a good point. Right? I mean, if she had a stable job, then it'd be like, okay, I could say, well, sweetheart, you know, it looks like my startup's struggling, and she'd be like, okay, well, I get income, and we're both in trouble. Uh, bo- both of those points are really good. One interesting thing that uh, um, Paul Graham said recently in an interview, he was asked ex- this question exactly uh, of the – you know the dozens of YC uh, companies uh, of the ones where there is a husband and wife team. Have you found that that's like a good thing, a bad thing, or what? And he says that um, it really has no impact. In other words, uh, it's not particularly good that they're particularly more likely to succeed, and it's not particularly bad where these things, um, or you know, uh, are a problem. Although they're probably already weeding out people that don't seem like they can work together. And I like Jason's uh, uh, warnings. I think th- those sound good. But that's an interesting data point from him. Like if you ask, if you ask uh, my wife, uh, you know, did you like working with Jason? <laughs> I don't know if she liked it as much as I liked working with her. <laughs> I mean, I thought it was great because she's like an operations master, right? She's just research, plan, execute, bang, 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 just knock stuff out, you know, is extremely efficient. And I'm much more like – you know, I'm the idea guy. Maybe we should do this and maybe we should do that. And, you know, I would get really kind of hung up on certain things. And I think she found me sometimes frustrating, whereas, you know, I love working with her. <laughs> so it, it doesn't, you may not have the same perspectives on it. You know, I mean, but she, does she choose the restaurants then? Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 it's like when we moved to California from Chicago, I'm like, I think we should move to California. And then next thing I know, she's like, all right, well, I found a place, got the thing, we're moving. And I'm like, all right, cool. <laughs> you know? That's good. And uh, anyway, the, the, the thing is, though, it's like I, I guess it really just um, really depends on your relationship. You know, or just, it's just very particular. And, uh, and I ask her sometimes, I'm like, yeah, if I do that startup, maybe, or, you know, I'll say, would, you, would you want to help out with this? And she's like, no. <laughs> Okay, I've got, got a question for you guys. Um, maybe ask Peldy first. Um, and this, once again, this harks back to me, you know, thinking about releasing some desktop software. Um, do you do a 30-day free trial? Are you thinking about doing it? If not, why not? If, if you're going to do it, why would you do it? 
So um, it's sort of all over the map for me because I now have maybe seven versions of mockups. Um, for the plugin versions, I uh, follow the uh, same trial policy of the wiki or bug tracker that I plug into just to, you know, um, make it easier for customers. Uh, they already digested that for the platform, so um, they're comfortable with that um, for the same. plugins as well. Uh, for the desktop version, I don't have a time-limited trial. Um, the the desktop version, it, unless you register it, um, only allows you to uh, work on one mock-up at a time. You cannot save uh, uh, your files, um, uh, but you, you can export and then manually copy-paste the XML to a text file if you want, and then you can re-import it later. So it's... Um, and also it nags you every five minutes, but you can dismiss it and keep working. So it's, um, you know, you, you can work on it enough. And if you can't afford the $79, you can, you know, put up with the, the little annoyances um, and, and work on it as long as you want. But I found that most people, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't have data to back this up, uh, but um, a lot of people uh, say that, uh, have told me that they bought, you know, um, uh, within a few hours of, of, of trying it. I like the uh, nag idea. I mean, so do you think that if I released a, like a desktop Twitter client that was really good, but that had like the five minute nag that you're talking about, that could be a good approach? I don't know. You know, you have to also look at a competitive landscape. Uh, most of the Twitter clients are free, so it might be hard to justify people uh, buying one. Although okay. I did buy one on my iPhone, uh, Tweety. Uh, maybe two dollars or something. Hmm. Jason, got any thoughts about that? Yeah, I agree that it depends on the market that you're in and the expectations. It also depends on <clears throat> the reason that someone's going to actually buy. So, in other words, it seems to me like if someone uses balsamic mockups and it is working for them, then you know. It, then they're they're they need to be nagged and so forth. But like ultimately, if they're hooked, then they're going to want to buy it. Um, there are other things like with the Twitter client. If you start nagging right away, I mean, I have two hundred and fifty to choose from, and I don't know that yours is the best or not. I mean, as in the instant that I feel put off, I may just say, "Oh, screw this! I'll just go to number forty-seven." Right. Whereas, right. Um, I mean, I'm not. I don't know if that is the case, but it just seems like. It's a different sort of a deal. Um, and at SmartBear, um, there's no way you can make a buying decision in a few hours um, just because it, you have to integrate it or you, you will want to integrate it with your version control and you'll want to gather some friends and try it out and you'll want to discuss does this fit in our development process at all. And like, There's all this stuff that, that, uh, that you have to decide first uh, before you buy it. So, so a nag, for example, would not encourage a purchase because it's not just a matter of like, yeah, I do want this and I just need to be nagged so I'll buy it. Like there's a lot of other, like nagging isn't going to make them want to buy it. They're going to need more time than that. Um, so again, the way our market works, our product and their buying decision, um, nagging won't help. Um, but for example, a report that shows here's how many bugs you found and here's how much time total you've spent in the tool. And that means every 12 minutes you spend in the tool, you find and fix a bug in your code. Now, what process do you have that's that efficient? That's the kind of report that might compel someone to say, wow, I didn't realize it was that effective for me in particular. Um, 
that's interesting. See, for us, that's the kind of thing that gets people more excited, whereas nagging doesn't help. I think as a general rule, you should give them enough uh, you know, time or resources or features so that they can see the value. However, you know, every product that is different, but you, you want to make sure that they, they get some value for sure out of it. Uh, maybe not too much. It's, it's a fine line. Very interesting. So for instance, I actually have a story about this, which is that the Jira version, um, I got lazy and didn't want to do a 30-day trial. I didn't want to code it. And so the easiest thing for me to do was to uh, uh, overlay a um, watermark on top of the mockups that got exported that said, this is a demo on top of their mockups. And I thought, you know, that, that works. They, they can still use the software for as long as they want, and, uh, but they see this little red overlay on top, which I hope will be annoying enough in the long term for them to buy. And then I got an email from a prospective customer that said, listen, uh, people are not using your tool because of the overlay, because they don't want to send their work. They don't want to show people their work because it has an overlay on top and it looks like it, it, it makes them look bad. And so since they haven't been sending th stuff around, the value of, of mockups is, is um, it's not as apparent as it could be. And so, and that totally opened my eyes. You know, I wasn't providing enough value. I wasn't, I, I was crippling it too much. Um, and so I switched to a 30-day trial then, and uh, sales have gone up since then for sure. So it's really a question of looking at, looking at your product, understanding the value that it brings, and, um, share, you know, imparting that to the people using it get, so that they can get a sense of the value as well. Yeah, but also I think an, an, another little lesson there from Peldi is um, test different or maybe not even proactively test, but like be looking for different things. Like he, he discovered, right, that if I'm reinterpreting this, he discovered that the original idea was preventing sales. So perhaps one of the biggest factor is whatever you choose what make sure you have a feedback mechanism where you can discover this like you discovered this so make sure that you're accessible and you know for, let me throw out one more thing for a twitter app it, twitter the the whole point right is to spread ideas and spread information and in particular about your client and twitter is the perfect mechanism for spreading the word about your client so for example what if you said well, you know, you could buy the client or you can do something that, that, in, that tells other people about the client. So, for example, all you have to do is Twitter once a month about the client and you can have it for free or something. Yeah. Like, I, this is off the top of my head, so that may be a bad idea. But the point is, what if I can, you know, what if the trial or the free period is dependent on me helping you in some way? So, like, for example, you you know, if you really wanted to make it go at this, you might spend money doing things like advertising or trying to get word of mouth going or whatever. So in lieu of paying you, um, that same kind of word of mouth advertising, well, you would have paid for that. So what's the difference if you collect the money from them and then somehow paid for it, which by the way, yeah. you probably can't pay for word of mouth. So there you go. Yeah. But you would if you could. And so it's the same thing. So, you know, there might be more creative things given that the tool is in a word of mouth space where you can sort of trade that in and you know someone decides look I don't want to be spamming my my own Twitter feed anymore with the advertisements for your thing so I'm going to pay for it right like th there could be much more creative ways of 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 bartering almost <laughs> trading um in, in in particular because of the space you're in it's interesting
Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I was be thinking. Be careful, that. though. Be, be careful about, you know, about uh, coming out as a, uh, you know, the, the, there's a lot of applications that sort of force you to spam a, your Twitter feed and, and people are not happy about that. But, uh, well, the, but the concept of you help me spread the word so you get something for free is absolutely valid. Yeah, I mean, you could just sort of tell them, uh, well, the, the, the app name is going to be called TweetMiner. So you could you could just sort of tell them, you know, just put hash tweet miner in a message once a month kind of thing. Speaking of Twitter, do you guys use it for for much? I mean, which I, 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 I'm subscribed. I guess I you're one of the handful of people I follow, Jason. So I see that you post every once in a while when I happen to check in. But I mean, do you find it very useful for for personally and for business? Um, I don't know. It's off and on. Um, I. I gave it a good run for like three weeks a couple of months ago, and for me, it it wasn't there was some return, but it wasn't worth all the time I was putting into it. So I changed my tactics, and now um, I use it kind of sparingly. I don't sit there with the thing open. Um, if someone at you know at at me is whatever you mentions me, whatever you call right. that, you know, uh, then that's constructive because they were proactive, and that that usually is worth the time but the just general stream um i just don't i i don't find that spending time in there is is a good use of time yeah i mean it seems like uh you know if you're if you're looking for interesting information i mean most of that you'll find on the web anyway it'll bubble up on you know uh hacker news or dig or reddit or something like that or somebody you know will send it to you if they think you really need to see something and yeah a lot of it seems also to be like People just saying, you know, even some friends of mine, they're talking about random stuff that I'm not, I don't really, you know, I have a friend of mine who lives in New York, and he's constantly talking about things that are going on in New York. I have zero interest. I don't, you know, whatever, you know, it's just sort of I am, in. Sorry to give a counterpoint. I think I am borderline addicted to Twitter. Uh, I use it extensively, more, a lot more for work than personally. Um, and uh, I think I get great value out of it. I think Twitter.com is in the top five of my referrers. And uh, for sure, there's um, the, the, I, I do have TweetDeck open all the time. And uh, we all do, actually. Uh, and it's kind of fun because a lot of the times it's people discovering the app and you know, a lot of the times it's people saying nice things. So it's sort of like having a cheerleader feed uh, as we work all day. It's, it, it's quite nice. Well, that's but really interesting. I mean, it's because you have, I mean, I, that's what's interesting about Twitter right now because it, it seems like you have such a, a range of how, of the kind of value people are getting from it. And well, so what, what you know, um, Jason, you said that you had kind of a you mixed, you know, results from it or you didn't get the value out of it. I mean, what didn't work for you? Because I'd be curious, like, why it didn't work for you and why it does seem to be working for Peldy. Well, first of all, maybe I'm just doing it wrong or maybe I need to put more time into it. <laughs> yeah, you're <clears> but, doing it right. Well, but you know, I think, well, I mean, I think it helps to know what you're trying to get out of it so that you can evaluate whether spending the time is getting that thing. Um, I I find that the the email conversations I get because of the blog um, are really high fidelity and interesting and fulfilling and so on, whereas the Twitter is is uh is more random. I, I do agree that that just getting links in Twitter is really useful. So like when I post um, a link to like a new blog post or something, um, I can easily get hundreds and or even thousands of of uh, of hits in a day. 
so that's pretty good. That's I mean that's pretty interesting. Um, so to the extent that it does that, so so in because that's valuable. Um, but but maybe me just you know looking through the the general Twitter feed is not what I'm trying to what I've tried to do is only Twitter out stuff that I really think is interesting and always relevant to something in startups and so it's it's almost like I'm throwing out bookmarks or little thoughts that aren't you know maybe deep enough for a blog post um, and so hopefully having a, a a group of people, uh, followers who are interested in startup stuff and find those links uh, valuable, um, that that then produces the thing that is valuable to me, which is when one of those links is my own thing, I get a lot of traffic. That's that's the, the approach that I've been taking um, for myself and for, for texting. Basically, what I, I mean, obviously texting, the podcast is just about tech stuff. So the approach that I've taken is I'm going to find 10 really high quality tech links and I'm going to post them a day. You know, I'm going to post th- those ten every day, and just basically give value to anyone who follows that feed, which is, you know, my feed. And then, um, you know, whenever we do a podcast, I will just post that. So maybe one in every forty posts, I'll say, you know, new texting podcast or whatever. Sorry, it's, it's even more. It's probably one in a hundred. So generally speaking, I'm just posting valuable links about the tech, and you know, it's working because I, I've got like two and a half thousand followers. And, you know, once again, to the texting podcast, you know, that Twitter stream is a is a big driver of traffic as well. So really, how much is it? I, I, I think it definitely brings, you know, I, I think it's bringing like we're only small numbers right now, but I'm sure it's bringing, you know, 100 new listeners a month kind of thing. Yeah, well, that's that's worth it then, I guess. Yeah. It's my, yeah it's what my I like one. about it is that. Sorry, go, go on, Pelly. Go on. No, I was saying that what I like about it is that if you use it well, you're ba- in order to 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 gain followers, you want to uh, post things that um, is interesting and valuable to them. Um, you know that gets retweeted, so to speak. And so you know uh, it's a, it's a virtuous cycle. You know that you want to if you post things that are useful and people understand that, and other people post things that are useful. Uh, you know the, the 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 level of noise versus uh, uh, signal. Um, improves and so you know i follow um i get a lot out of following people i get uh, most of my breaking news or, or news in general from uh from the people i follow on twitter for sure um and then the other thing is that once you have uh hundreds uh, of or once you you have a critical mass of uh, of uh, followers then you can start using it as a uh, crowdsource uh, search engine so if yeah. you know you you see uh, the, the Gary V or you see Tim O'Reilly doing this all the time, where if there's something they can't fit, find out, um, or or Marshall Kirkpatrick or uh, Richard McManus from Rewrite Web, they always ask their followers, "What do you think about this?" And so then you that that's a way to get um, a ton of uh, of uh, good info about different things. Peldy, that's the point of the Twitter client that I'm making is to enable. That's why it's called Tweet Miner. Is to enable you to find valuable content. It's enable to enables you to find the signal, and then just tweet that in an easy way. That's nice. So when do you think you're going to release it? I think uh, it's it's coming along faster than I was expected. Uh, than I expected. Um, I'm I'm guessing maybe within within a month. That's not too bad. How much how much time are you allocating to it? Because you're doing consulting work. Yeah, I've I've put about um, well, I mean, see, it's interesting. Like I've put three days into it, and I've and I've got quite far. But and that that would make you think, 
oh well you know it's really easy to make but it's it's not that it's because i've got so many libraries that i've you know that i've written over the years that enables me to make it quickly Right. Of course, that last 10% will take a lot of time, all that stuff you got to do at the end. Well, what's interesting is creating a desktop application in JavaScript because, you know, if you make an Ajax call in JavaScript, when you click the mouse button, it sort of hogs the processor and it kind of changes things. So it, it's not a very good user experience for you to, for them to click a button and then nothing to happen while, while it's doing that Ajax stuff. So I've had to find, you know, tips and tricks to, to make it work in a more responsive way. No, don't we use an asynchronous? I mean, don't you just use asynchronous calls? Like you call it and you move on, and then you get a call back from Ajax, and you can do something. I mean, that's how I yeah, but it's still like if you're if you're doing something like parsing an RSS feed, okay, you know, like when it's doing that, it it really hogs up the processor. Like it it just nothing actually happens when that when that's being done. Right, because you, know? you can't do because you can't do multi-threading. Exactly. So it's like it's sort of you have to cleverly time it. So what I what I find myself doing is lots of things like set time out so I'll, I'll you know when they click a button i'll change the button state and then the next thing will happen is like a set time out and then i'll do the ajax call <laughs> so you're you're kind of faking a threading model yeah basically <laughs> right yeah exactly. I've, I've, I've i've done that in javascript i remember reading something about guy about someone doing that actually wrote like a you know what came across as like a threading model in javascript it's kind of kind of cute well that's interesting well you know, i guess we'll have to do some uh, follow-ups as we go along in the next few weeks to see how you how you do I hope that wasn't too off topic. <laughs> no, I would just say that that your your challenge is going to be how are you? You know, you're Twitter client number two hundred and fifty one, right? I mean, yeah. I think that that is the biggest uh, challenge. So maybe maybe if you uh, <clears throat> you know sent free licenses to all the top Twitter people and said, hey, this is a new client. Here it is for free. Love to know what you think of it. You know, no strings attached, no anything. Just love to know what you think. Any feedback is appreciated. You know, a you might get feedback, and b you know if any of them like it and say something about it, that's how you can stand out. That's a good idea. That's a really good idea, Jace, because you know that what they'll do is they'll end up tweeting about it if they like it, right? Right, right. And those people who are big time Twitters, they're going to have a ton of people following them, and and they're going to need to try it out. So if they're trying out, what are they going to do except write a tweet about it? Hey, I'm using a new client. It's pretty cool. I mean, the point of this thing isn't to be a Twitter client. The point of this thing is to find. Basically, the point of this thing is to create ham on Twitter. <laughs> is basically what the point is. So, in other words, it 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 helps you sort of search through the net and find you know the the really interesting stuff that's going on, and then sort of let your followers know about it. Sorry, uh, mildly related. I have a uh, an idea for a Twitter application that I would uh, I would really love for somebody to uh, build. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, definitely. So. Um, Basically, it's a uh, it's a Twitter account that you follow, uh, maybe called Inbox Zero, except I just checked and it's taken. Um, and basically, you send it, you send this account a message whenever you reach Inbox Zero, and it replies to you with an automated message that you know showers praises on you and tells you you know you're the best and you know. Because there's that feeling whenever you reach inbox zero that you just want to tell somebody, but it's, you don't want to do it, you know, every day or whenever you can. But if you, I would love for it for there to be a bot that uh, I could, uh, you know, I could uh, uh, brag about my reaching inbox zero with, and then he could, you know, reply to me and reply to the world and say, hey, look, this user reached inbox zero. He's so great. Blah blah blah. 
that means more is people that... are going to send you mail. So you've got to inbox zero, and then all of a sudden, oh, Peldy's free. Let's. No, it's just you know, I, I, it's obviously not a money maker idea, but it's something that I wish I could do. That's, I don't. I, th I don't think I fully understand inbox zero. Does that mean your Twitter? That's inbox? when when you, you when you're caught up on email, basically, when you have no ah. unread email, and it's such a struggle uh, to do uh, every day. Well, and so also, that. Say that again. You'd also need another account called uh, inbox bankruptcy, <laughs> the one right. where you just delete everything, even though you haven't read yeah. it. You know, it kind of reminds me of. Um, yeah, I remember uh, Jason Calacanis had done this thing called fat blogging like a year or two ago about you know his struggle to lose weight and you know what he was learning about how to exercises and you know protein bars and things like that and it and a lot of people really liked it because not only did they get good information about losing weight but it was sort of like these are you're keeping up with somebody's struggle like they're trying to lose 30 or 40 pounds right like he felt like he had gotten out of out of shape and he really wanted to work his way back. And he wasn't a fitness person necessarily, but he was going to make a go at it. And other people who are trying to lose weight were also doing the same thing. So it was like this added sort of like, hey, I'm not doing this alone. There's somebody else struggling with me. And he called it fat blogging. And so it's kind of like if you, if you made a sort of generic name for it, it'd be like, um, you know, you know, you have crowdsourcing. It'd be like crowd support. Right. Like, you know, Peldy's talking about doing it with, you know, kind of getting things done. Like my inbox is clear. I am done. Right. Goal. You get almost the kind of thing for for other things like, say, weight loss. Right. Like uh, the Twitter. You know, right. And it cheers you on. And everybody that follows that uh, account is basically an automatic support group yep. uh, of people That's that have yeah. the same interest. It's yeah, a really crowds, good idea. Crowds, crowd support. <laughs> That's Crowd support via, you know, via tw using Twitter as the mechanism. Yeah, fat tweeting, <laughs> or getting things done, tweeting, or whatever. I don't, you know if, I don't know if I could bear following that account because, <laughs> because it, if it was successful, I would get you know a hundred people a second saying, "Oh, I'm zero zero. You know, I'm not sure that I want to follow that. Yeah, that's true. I didn't think about that. We I don't think, think it's reply, in but. What's interesting about this, these, these Twitter Twitter ratios is like how many people people are following versus being followed. Like I see people, and I think most of them are bots or whatever, who are following thousands of people, you know? And it's like, I mean, I don't know how you can follow more than... I don't think that's always the case that it's bots because, I mean, basically Twitter will only let you... The, the way that it works is, okay, people discover you because you follow them. You know, that's one of the main ways that people discover you unless you're, unless you're a very successful blogger. And Twitter will only let you follow so many. So that's why it looks very balanced. You have a similar number of follows to the people that you follow. Do you see what I'm saying? Well, I'm looking at Peldy right now, and he's like, uh, I think he was like, what? You're following 18 and 153 are following you, which Wait. seems like a really good balance, well, right? Well, look at the balsamic. I use the balsamic account. Oh, okay. Uh, I think balsamic's going to be a little bit different figures. How much is balsamic? <laughs> Probably thousands. I'm looking at, I don't know. But I do get a lot of followers. What I think um, is hilarious when you have people following, you know, thousands of people, but hardly one's following them. <laughs> it's like, it's almost so, like a cool, how cool you are index. Like if you're following like 10 people, but that 10,000 people are following you, it's like, you're really cool, right? Because you're basically um, saying, I don't care what anyone else thinks, but everybody cares what I think. Now, if you're someone who follows 10,000 people, you know, and no one following you is basically saying, I care what everybody thinks and nobody <laughs> cares what I think, you know? I mean, it's the yeah. ultimate in lameness, it seems to me. So I guess my ratio is pretty good because I follow 237 and I have 2,530 followers. Yeah, that's a good, about a little over 10 to 1 ratio. So your coolness index is pretty good.
All what's right. Your, what's your index, Jason? Cohen. My my index. Yeah, yeah. No, what's your what's your ratio? Which oh. I'm just basically I'm basically equating that to your. Yeah. Code. Let's see. It's seven twenty five following uh, followers and one hundred and seventeen following. So like one six. One six. So you're not quite as cool as Penalty, but you're pretty cool. <laughs> this is so weird. <laughs> Just for that, I'm going to go unfollow everyone. Be great. <laughs> yeah, Actually, you know, I know someone who... can't do that. Then, that. then Twitter will axe your account. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah, I think so, yeah. I don't know. I know, That's weird. I know someone who did do that. Um, maybe that was before Twitter was paying attention to that. But there was someone who was auto-following back, and he got like 2,000 followers, and he was following 2,000 people, and he realized, I don't know any of these people. I'm going to start over and only, inv- only follow people I know. And he went back to one. And maybe this was before Twitter, you know, Saw that as a problem, and uh, so he has this insane ratio. <laughs> That's why. Well, so my ratio is, you know, and obviously I suck. My ratio is, I'm following 1,788, and I've got 2,000. I've got 2,484 followers. <laughs> How do you follow all those people? You just, you just sort of. Well, I, I've got tricks. Basically, what I do is I, it's I like, search. It's like watching the Matrix. <laughs> what I do is I search on hashtags. So I search on something like hash PHP or hash balsamic or whatever, you know, all, all of the, uh, if someone's tweeted that, I know they're interested in the same thing as me. And then I just follow them. Yeah. And, but I mean, and how then do you what? Why do you follow them? Well, I thought fo- the reason why I follow them is so that they, they then, you know, hear about me. And the hope is, is that they follow me back. I don't, and, I don't, it doesn't really work that way. I get, I have a filter in my Gmail for the emails from, uh, from um twitter that say you know you have a new follower and so it just goes into this folder that i rarely look at and well it must work that way because i mean it must work that way i mean it must actually work because i've got you know 2400 followers as a result okay i mean the reason the reason why it's why i've got a lot more followers than than people i'm following is because because i post up high quality links i get a lot of people saying you know check out this this guy because he he posts good links but uh, you know the original the original people just heard about me because I followed them in the first place. Right, but you don't basically you don't use your stream to look at Twitter. You use search only. By the way, this is so like the Gilmore Gang. All we do is talk about Twitter. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, it's just because uh, uh, you know Jess is building a Twitter client. So I guess there's. Well, a I'm just trying to build a Twitter client to make it to make what I do on Twitter easier. Yeah. All right. Basically. Okay, so I got one completely off-topic. Uh, uh, you know, thing, uh, which is what Justin loves. He always wants to go off topic. So here, yes, here's here's a little off topic thing. So again, this for for no other reason than to just switch off switch off Twitter. It's called a mathematical model for surviving the zombie apocalypse. So I know you're all probably very worried about what happens when the zombies come. Well, it turns out that these uh, professors at the uh, University of Ottawa uh, did a very detailed mathematical model. Of what to do, and so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna sort of give you a little little uh, advice and what and what what should happen. Actually, not advice because I guess this is not what an individual should do. It says okay, this is the paper examines three possible methods of dealing with a zombie outbreak: quarantine of the zombies, treatment of zombies so that they once again become human, and impulsive eradication of the zombies whenever possible. Okay, so here's what the result was: is the models found that quarantine could work, but the end result would be either the eradication of all zombies. Or the eradication of all humans. If a cure, if a cure for being a zombie were found, humans could would coexist with zombies, but only in low numbers. 
but eradication, if properly coordinated, could wipe out could could wipe out the entire zombie population in mere ten days. So essentially, what I'm advocating is that if you see any zombies, you have to kill them on the spot. There's just no other way. <laughs> Thanks for that. That's great. <laughs> I, wish go- pay, I wish someone would pay me to come up with crap like that. <laughs> Isn't that great? I'm looking at this paper, and it's like a uh, it's like an 18 page mathematical model of it. I mean, I guess it's a it could be applied to other types of you know you know population you know, like uh, dealing without pandemics and things like that. So it's sort of like the tongue-in-cheek thing, which is kind of it's rare. It's pretty nice. It even has code at the end. Yeah. Uh, yeah it has I, I just downloaded the paper. It has, uh, I don't know what language it is. but uh, Yeah, I think it's maybe it's maybe like uh, MATLAB. It looks like it's MATLAB. It's probably Lisp. You know who that could be useful for? For You know, in conspiracy theories, you know, they're always talking about the gray men who rule the banks. That paper could be really useful for them to totally enslave the human race. The gray men? What's the gray men? <laughs> you know the you know the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers. They call them the gray men? Yeah, I think so. But yeah, uh, thanks again for coming on guys. It was really it was fun. Fun uh, catching Thank you. up. So we'll speak to you again soon as well. Alright. Yeah. Absolutely. Bye. Uh, that's a wrap. We're out.